0: well good morning guys <clears throat> so good to see all of you how crazy is it that the advent seasons upon us this sunday is the the first sunday of advent and if you don't have a church home uh, we would love for you to spend christmas with us here at second and then we have a uh, a family service this coming sunday night we call the hanging of the green um all of our kids are leading us in worship and we'll decorate the church but of course um uh, December 10th is our um, one of our favorite services here, the Festival of Carols. Full orchestra, lots of sing-alongs. It's going to be a beautiful service. And, of course, there's Christmas Eve uh, services on December 24th. We have, I think, four full services Christmas Eve. We would love to have you. Also, too, if you're interested in having Advent devotionals, we have plenty of those in our bookstore. Um, you can hang around. And our friend Jonathan over here, he wanted me to remind you that we have plenty of resources here at 2nd to help you in your Bible study, Uh, most notably um, this morning, Tim uh, Tim Keller's uh, commentary on the Proverbs. He has one on the Psalms too. Um, So many things to help us in our study together. Tim is one of my favorite pastors and scholars, and he was actually a great help to me um, with our lesson this morning. Um, Speaking of which, go ahead and flip open to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at uh, verse 12 through 59. We'll do our best to look at all of those verses. Um, as you're turning there, just a little bit of context. The last time we got together, uh, George spoke and he uh, taught on the majority of John chapter 7. And if you remember the context, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they were in Jerusalem at the temple during uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as he was teaching, we saw that the hostility towards Jesus was growing. In fact, it really started growing growing. In chapter 5, and it's a major theme in John's gospel, Jesus keeps getting worse and worse. The leaders in Israel, they, um, they're seeking to condemn Jesus, um, not only because of the things that he was teaching, but also because of what he was doing. He was healing on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no. And we also saw, too, the crowds, um, they were divided on Jesus. After all they've heard uh, Jesus say and do, they're asking the question, is this really the guy? Is this really the Messiah? the Savior of the world. So that was the context of John chapter 7, and that's the context really of our passage, uh, verse 12 through 59. Uh, But before we dive in, just a little bit of a side note, you'll notice that we're going to skip chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Um, Why are we skipping this passage, the woman caught in adultery? If you have your study Bible, most of your Bibles will have this little heading right above that pericope that says that the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Um, Just a little bit of background to that. Um, Every single scholar that you would read, um, liberal, conservative, whatever biblical scholar, they would tell you that the Bible, the New Testament we have, is the most reliable, incredible document that we have from all of antiquity. Um, And the reason they say that is because of the amount of manuscripts that we have. We do not have the original, like the first copy that John wrote of his gospel. We don't have those original copies. We don't have the original copies of any document from antiquity. What we have are uh, copies and manuscripts of those copies. Now, for the New Testament, we have the most copies of any other document from antiquity. In fact, we have 5,000 copies of the New Testament, either in whole or in part. Now say for example, Homer's Iliad, we have about 300 copies of that and every single scholar say, what we have as Homer's Iliad is the exact match of the original. So just compare that 300 copies, we have 5,000 copies of the New Testament. And uh, many of our manuscripts, the earliest of which are within two generations of the actual historical happenings, which is highly significant. Okay, so here's the thing, though. Our earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They actually don't start showing up until about the mid-ages. All of the early church fathers do not comment on this section either. So what that tells us is that the woman caught in the adultery story most likely happened. It was most likely passed down orally than a scribe or scribes in the mid-ages decided to insert it into John's gospel because a lot of the themes are similar. But that's the key phrase. They inserted it. And we know they inserted it too because if you look at last week's passage and our passage today, the context is exactly the same. The language is very, very similar. They, they just line up. In fact, the early church fathers, they go from you know, chapter 7, verse 52, straight into chapter 8, verse 12. It was inserted, even the common language that we see in that story, um, the woman caught in adultery, it's a bit different than the way that John writes elsewhere. So again, most likely that story really happened, passed down orally, but we, what we know is, is definitively sure it was not part of John's original gospel, which is why we're skipping it this morning. You know, we want to study God's word, we want to submit to God's word that we know is his inspired word, Right. So that leads us to our passage this morning, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 12 through 59. And fellas, this is such an important and significant passage because again, in it, Jesus gives us another I am statement where he says that he is the light of the world. It's unbelievable. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And, and what does that mean for a bunch of guys like us? Well, He explains it to us in verses 12 through 59. We're going to read the chapter in its entirety. Um, We're going to do our best to comment on every section, but uh, we probably won't get to it. What I want us to focus in on, though, are verses 1 through 30 to really zero in on that I am statement. What is Jesus saying? That he is the light of the world. It's very, very significant. So let's look to God's word together, starting in verse 12. Hear the word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, now that word again is important in context. It picks up right where John chapter seven, verse 52 left off. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, key phrase, will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that, that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which that's pointing to his work on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying these things. Many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, that is, continually lives a lifestyle of sin, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the things that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful um, that you give us your words that we might know truth and that you give us your spirit that we might understand it and respond to it in faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd send your spirit down upon us Um, That you would open our hearts and our eyes to see marvelous things, and by the power of your spirit and your grace, you would make us more and more like your son, who is the light of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. A lot of you guys, um, well, I've said it before, I'm a huge World War II nut. Um, My dad was that way, and we just watch all of the old black and white movies and read all the books, history books, like the boring ones. I mean, in my house growing up, you know, Battle of the Bulge with Henry Fonda was a Christmas movie. You know, we, every year, we just love that stuff. Um, I recently read a book and even watched a miniseries about the book. It's historical fiction called All the Light You Cannot See. Um, Netflix has a miniseries. Have y'all seen that or, or, or uh, read the book? I can't recommend it enough. Again, it's historical fiction, but I'll give you this, uh, the synopsis of it. It's about this young French girl who happens to be blind. And uh, she's raised by her father to know how to navigate this life as a person who is blind. And it's really neat. He, uh, he makes a, a complete model of the French town they're living in. And he r- gets her finger to trace the, you know, it's like an exact, an exact model of the town. She can trace her finger through it to learn how many stops there are between the market and her house. It's a really neat thing. Um, so he teaches her how to navigate as a blind person. But what he primarily does is he teaches her to understand what is true, to know truth, and to know beauty and goodness. That is the light you cannot see, that even a blind person can see this light to know what is true, to know what is beautiful, and to know what is good. Eventually, Nazi Germany invades France, and as they invade France, moral and spiritual darkness descends. Everything is just in chaos. Um, There's destruction, there's violence, and there's confusion. Now, uh, around that time, this girl and her uncle decide to do a radio broadcast up in the attic of their little house. Now, this radio broadcast serves two functions. One, um, they're part of the French underground, so they're sending coded messages to the allies before they invade Normandy. But also, she takes it upon herself to communicate truth, beauty, and goodness, which was a breath of fresh air given the darkness of the context. Now, little known to her, there was a German soldier, a young German soldier, and his job was to listen to the radio and try to pick up enemy movements, and, but he picks up her radio broadcast. And he's just undone by the things that she was saying. He, he had never heard that stuff before. Um, just little nuggets of truth, nuggets of beauty, and nuggets of goodness, and, and it completely transformed his life, so much so that he became uh, disillusioned with the German war effort and all the propaganda that he actually um, went AWOL. He left his unit in order to find this girl for two reasons. One, to protect her from the other Germans that were trying to find her and kill her, because again, she was sending coded messages, but also so that he could learn how to live a life of truth and goodness and beauty. And there's this one line that just gets me every time. I'm going to butcher it because You know, I don't have a French accent, but this is what the girl says. It's so beautiful. She says, in this time of darkness, moral and spiritual darkness, in this time of darkness, remember it is light that will last forever. And darkness lasts not even for a second when you remember to turn on the light, the light you cannot see. I love that for a number of reasons, but here's two. One, the whole context reminds me of the context in which we live. Obviously, we do not live in Nazi-occupied France, but the Bible tells us that this world, at least momentarily, is occupied by the evil one. He invaded in Genesis 3. And since then, this world fell and moral and spiritual darkness has descended. And there's chaos, there's violence, and, and there's confusion. People do not know which way's up. We see that. And in fact, the prophets of old tell us one of our favorite Christmas messianic prophecies out of Isaiah 9, a child is born. Right before that, Isaiah tells us in chapter 9 that people are walking around in darkness. They are blinded to truth. They are blinded to God's design, to beauty and to to goodness. Certainly on the societal level, but also on the individual level. And I think we see that each and every day. People live as if they are their own king, right? They they are living according to to the beat of their own rhythm. They don't know which way's up. They're making poor decisions that hurt themselves, sometimes physically, but certainly morally, certainly spiritually. They don't know which way's up. And some of us might know people like that. We might be people like that. We might say to ourselves, man, it feels like I've been walking around in darkness for so very long. That's the context in which we live. Another reason I love that quote in that book is because what that girl says is a shadow of what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Because this is what Jesus is saying. You guys want to know what's wrong with the world? You want to know what's wrong with society? (laughs) You, You want to know what's wrong with you? you got to turn on light. And we say, well, what is that light? Jesus says right here, I am the light. And whoever follows me will never again stumble or walk in darkness. But they will have the light of life. It's almost as if Jesus is saying darkness does even last a second when you remember to turn on the light. Jesus says, I am the light. What in the world does that mean that he is the light? And what's more, how do we get that light in our lives? Jesus explains it in John chapter 8. There's three major questions we're going to answer. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Because it's very significant. Two, why can we trust Jesus in saying that he is the light of the world? Why can we trust anything that he says? And we're going to spend the least amount of time on that. But thirdly, most urgently, how do we get that light source, the light of Christ, in our life okay so first what is the light of christ what does he mean in verse 12 this whole first point is just looking at verse 12 is that significant what is jesus saying in verse 12 well again we have to remember the context the context jesus is doing all of this teaching in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 um, in the temple in jerusalem during the feast of the tabernacle okay Now, what is the Feast of the Tabernacle? It's basically this one giant party where they're commemorating the fact that God led them in the wilderness. Now, in this party, there are two ceremonies. The first ceremony is the pouring of the water, symbolizing when God calls water to come from the rock. That was the immediate context of chapter 7 when George taught. The other ceremony is the illumination of the temple which is the immediate context of what Jesus says here. Now, what is the illumination of the temple? By all written accounts, it must have been extraordinary. Um, Right where Jesus was teaching verse 20 in the treasury, right in the treasury courts, there were these four giant columns. They call them candelabras. And at the top of these columns were these bowls just filled with oil and wicks. So every night during this week-long party, they would light those puppies. And it was so brilliant, it was said to have lit in all of Jerusalem, certainly the the neighborhoods around the temple. But it was something to behold. It was just so bright. And every time they lit it, there was this giant party. People would sing and they would dance. The Mishnah tells us that even men of piety, that is the old fogies, the sticks in the mud, even the men of piety would dance all night. All night long, these guys would dance when they would light these candles. It's probably comparable to like a great New Year's Eve party. That's how it's described in written literature. Now, what are they dancing about? What are they singing about? Why are they lighting those candles? Great question. I'm glad you asked. What they were doing, again, they were commemorating the fact that God had led Israel through the wilderness with that giant glory cloud you know what I'm talking about in Exodus 13 and 14? It's one of the coolest and strangest phenomena in the Old Testament. If you go back to chapter 13, after the Jews of, chapter 13 of Exodus, after the Jews left Egypt, there's this giant pillar that was before them, this, this giant cloud. Now, during the day, it was this giant pillar of, of smoke. It was this giant cloud. Now, why is that significant, um, that going before them during the day? Well, they were going through the wilderness. That's just a catch-all word used for the desert. It's not like they had a bunch of trees. They weren't going through the jungle. They are going through the desert. And back then, even today, it could get to about 130 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, right? And uh, there's just no natural shade. In an environment that hot, wind isn't gonna do a blessed thing. I mean, you're gonna die out there. So what did God do? Well, just like he provided bread from heaven, which Jesus fulfilled in John chapter six, being the bread of life, Just as God provided water, which Jesus fulfilled in John chapter 7, God gave them shade. He protected them from that heat that could just burn them right up. So God led them and protected them from the heat of the sun, essentially. We'll get more to that in a second. But during night, what happened during the night? Because again, they didn't have artificial lights back then. They didn't have you know, they had flashlights, they have miner's helmets. There wasn't streetlights out there. It was pitch black in the dark and there's predators out there and they could get lost. And so what did God do? He provided a pillar of fire to light the way so they might know the way in which they should go. Okay, so what do we have here in the Old Testament? We have the very presence of God, his Shekinah glory that was guiding God's people and protecting God's people. And so here in this Second Temple Judaism party, where Jesus is, everybody is celebrating that. They're praising God that he had done that for his people and, and they're praying that God would do that yet again, that they would be guided and protected by the very glory of God. And it's in the middle of the celebration, this is astounding, that Jesus stands up and looks at every single person there dancing. And he goes, guys, I am that glory cloud. I am that light. I was the one who guided your ancestors and I'm the one who protected your ancestors. I am the Shekinah glory. Friends, this this is just absolutely amazing that Jesus says this. By saying it, he's saying three other things. He's saying three things. One, Jesus again is saying that he is God himself. He is saying that he is the glory of God. And he says this throughout the entire chapter. That's why they try to stone him at the end. But that's what Jesus says right from the very get-go in verse 12 when he says that he is the glory cloud. He, He is the glory of God incarnate. The apostle John, remember, says the same thing all the way back at the beginning of the gospel in verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh. And in the original Greek, tabernacled among us. Which I think it's neat that, again, this is the feast of the tabernacles But John says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John is using categories of the Shekinah glory of God to describe who Jesus is at the very beginning of his gospel. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing here. He is is telling the crowds that he is the glory of God. He is the presence of God. He is the word of God incarnate and he has come to show the way to people who are trapped in darkness. He has come to show truth, to show us which way is up. He has come to expose evil and to put out darkness forever. That is exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 12. But not only that, he is also saying just as the pillar of smoke, the pillar of cloud uh, guarded God's people, Jesus has come to guard us too. Now, how does Jesus guard us? How does he provide shade? There's another really cool passage in Exodus chapter 4, I believe, verse uh, 19, when um, Israel, or, uh, rather Egypt is, is hot on Israel's tail. You know, the entire host of Egypt is coming after Israel, and Israel, they have the Red Sea in front of them. How does God provide for them? Well, the angel of the Lord. And that pillar of cloud moves from in front of Israel to behind Israel. And so it's basically this barrier, the angel of the Lord, this pillar of cloud that places itself in between the people of God and the enemies of God's people. The New Testament says that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He puts himself between God's people, his people, and his and our enemies, as the angel of the Lord, he absorbs the arrows of the accuser. He shields us from the heat of our own consciences. Every single one of us have heard, and tell me if I'm wrong, but every single one of us have heard whispers from the devil himself that says, how could you possibly believe that, that God loves you, you miserable little sinner? We've heard that. We've heard our consciences say the very same thing when we remember past sins or current struggles, or things of regret? How could God ever possibly love a slime bucket like me? We've all gone through that. But what this reminds us of is remember that Jesus Christ is your shade. Remember the gospel. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 38. Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge, accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation to summon up will be able to separate us from the love of God as those in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the Bible is saying that if you belong to Jesus, He is your shade. He is your protection from anything that could possibly harm you, truly harm you. He's got you in His hands. He absorbs all of those accusations and those condemnations, which we rightly deserve, upon Himself. He guards us, brothers. Lastly, Jesus says, just like that pillar of fire, He also guides us. Now, how does Jesus guide us? Well, again, we live in a darkened place. We live in a very confusing world, and people are going to still live confused lives. I mean, seriously, apart from Jesus, we are blind. We're going to be seduced by the zeitgeist of culture, as so many of our friends are. We're going to be confused and seduced by that. We're going to be allured by all the political rhetoric we hear each and every day. Mammon will become our God. We will live as if we are our own kings. We'll pretend that this world is all that there is. And again, we'll go on and on stumbling in darkness like so many people around us. But what the Bible says is that is that Jesus is the truth of God. He is light. And, And when you come to him, when you make his word your thing and when you obey him and abide in him, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but when you listen to his voice, rather than the voice of culture, rather than the voice of our friends, rather than the voice of our own crooked little heart, when we listen to him, he guides us. Of course, there's intellectual enlightenment. We become wise to the things of God, don't we? Think about before you came to Jesus, how you thought the world worked, but then you come to Jesus and your eyes are just, this is what life is about. This is truth, this is beauty, this is goodness. God's word does that. It makes us wise to the things of God. We understand how humanity works, how we're supposed to love our neighbor, how we're supposed to manage our finances, how we're supposed to lead our family, and all of the rest, it makes us wise. But even more than that, it brings us spiritual enlightenment. He reveals to us the will of God for us to be saved in Christ alone. We learn truth, don't we, that yeah, we really are sinful people, more sinful than we ever thought imaginable. But we also learn, too, that in Jesus Christ, we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. Jesus awakens us. He he becomes our light. Now, Now, how does he do that now? Because he's not physically present with us. He's at the right hand of God the Father. Well, right now, this is how he is our light, through the Spirit and through his Word. That's how he guides us as his people. Romans 8, again, Paul in verse 13 says, All who are sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And how does the spirit of God lead the people of God? He does so through the word of God. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. One of my favorite pastors I've quoted him before, H.B. Charles, he summarizes it like this. "It, it, It is the will of God to have the spirit of God, to use the word of God to transform the people of God into the image of the son of God. That's what Jesus is saying. (laughs) Friends, the riches of what Jesus is promising here cannot be overstated because the Bible says we live in a darkened, fallen world and without light, we are done for. We will die. But what Jesus is saying here is that all these miraculous things that the people of God experienced in the Old Testament is merely an hors d'oeuvre to what he's offering. He is the true bread of life that gives life to our lifeless souls. He is the living water who produces within us a stream of, of never-ending joy. And he is the true glory cloud that protects us and guides us, not just for 40 years, but for all of eternity. And so in verse 12, Jesus is saying, do you want that? And anybody in the right mind says, of course I want that. How do I get that? Well, he's going to tell us, but first he says why we can trust him. So point two in verses uh, 13 through 19 and verse 23, we see why we can trust Jesus. Now the context here, there's a lot of back and forth. So I'm going to do my best to summarize it. You know, Shockingly, the majority of this crowd rejected outright what Jesus had said in verse 12. And this is their argument in verse 13. In verse 13, they says, here you are. You know, you're appearing as your own witness, which, come on, Jesus, um, you got to know your Bibles. That means that uh, if you don't have two witnesses, your truth is unverifiable. Therefore, we don't have to listen to you. Now, essentially, they get that from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 19. Um, They're appealing to a Hebrew judicial system. They have to have two witnesses for, for truth to be verified. Now, they're taking that out of context, as we'll see, and they're manipulating it. But this is what these jokers are doing. They are pinning their unbelief on a technicality, right? That's what they're doing. They're say, I mean, essentially they're saying, Jesus, you've provided us some really great evidence, and Jesus has. You've given us every reason to believe you, but you know, we're not going to submit to you. We're not going to follow you as king because of this right here, which is completely moronic. But isn't that how most people function today? I mean, most people try to get out of believing and submitting to Jesus by doing the exact same thing. They just appeal to moronic deal. You know, like, you know, youth pastor, you you present some really great evidence here, but you know, my parents are good people. They don't go to church. I don't think I have to really do what you're, as long as you're a decent person, you're good. Or pastor, you made a great comment, but you know, I'm only 40 or 50. I, I still got some years to sow my oats here. I'll get serious with Jesus in my 60s and 70s, Right? You know, we've heard people say that. We may have said that before. But doesn't that just go to show you something peculiar? When you trust Jesus, he really does become your light. Everything makes sense, finally. But when you reject Jesus or keep Jesus at an arm's distance, which is true of most cultural Christianity, darkness really does descend. And those asinine excuses we have make sense to us which is really just the noetic effect of sin. It makes us dumb, But here's God. God is a gracious God. And in his grace, Jesus plays ball with these people and gives them every reason to believe what he says in verses 14 through 19. He says a lot, but I just want to focus on two things. First off, he appeals to his relationship with his father. This is what he says in verse 16. If you look at verse 16 and really the surrounding verses, Jesus, he keeps on saying, my father who sent me, and we already know why the father sent Jesus. You know, the, in love, he sent his son that should whoever believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus has kind of given the reason for his first advent. Guys, I've not come to condemn. You guys are trying to condemn me, but I have not come to condemn the world. There's a season of amnesty. I've come to save you jokers. But even in the midst of that, notice what Jesus discloses. He discloses that his father is his witness. Jesus is saying that I stand with the Father who sent me. My Father is my witness, is what, actually what he literally says, I am the Father. And that beautifully, again, expresses his godness, his, his deity, which was the life force of Jesus, his very heartbeat, his oneness, with his father but what Jesus is doing in these first couple of verses he's making an extremely important claim he's talking about his oneness with why can you believe me because i am one with my father that's and you say you believe in the father i am one with the father that is why you can believe me he's making the highest claim possible now because this is the highest claim possible that means it demands a decision Either we believe and accept Jesus as who he says he is, or we're actually rejecting God as these people did. Now, this is really interesting. If you're just kind of reading along, you'll notice there's this, there's this trial motif that the Apostle John has going on in his gospel. And it really begins, starts to shape, uh, take shape, this trial motif in John chapter 5, where, again, the crowds put Jesus on trial. And there, he actually does lists all of the witnesses that they presumably forgot about when we get to John chapter eight. But uh, John, the gospel writer, gives us mound of witnesses. First off, he he appeals to John the Baptist. John the Baptist witnesses Jesus witnesses to himself. The Father witnesses to Jesus. The Moses, who you love so much, witnesses to Jesus. So the first five books of the law, which you hold so dear, appeal to Jesus is what John, the gospel writer, is saying. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus and the disciples are testifying to Jesus. So there's this mountain of witnesses that authenticate the truth claims that Jesus is making for himself, yet they still reject Jesus. So right here, they're not really asking for witnesses. They're just throwing something out there to hope that it sticks on the wall to get them out of having to follow Jesus because Jesus has already done what they're asking for, which just goes to show you the natural fallen heart needs more than evidence. It needs more than apologetics. Evidence and apologetics are extremely important. We should be ready to give a defense of what we believe and brothers, there is mountains of evidence, objective truth, even around the, the resurrection. And if the resurrection happened, that means everything else that Jesus said and did is absolutely true. But there's still people who reject Jesus. So the natural heart, it needs more than convincing. Jesus tells us what it needs and in John chapter three. They need a new heart. They need a revived heart. They need grace in their hearts. So one of the things that we learn here is that belief, brothers, it's a gift. If you believe, praise Jesus, because you didn't come to that you know, on your own know-how. That's God's grace in your life. But nevertheless, one of the things that Jesus appeals to why we can trust him is because he is one with the Father. His second appeal is to his origin, verse 23. Jesus says, guys, I am not of this world. That's why you can believe me. You know, first off, I'm not like you because I, I did not originate. That's what we learn in John 1. Jesus tells us that that he is preexistent, that he is eternally one with the Father, that he is eternally God. He is not like the crowds because Jesus was always wasing. He's always been. But here he gives another proof, verse 23. He says, you can trust me because unlike you, I am not of this world. Now, why is that significant? I quoted this guy in our first lesson together, a famous German philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein. This is why that's significant. Ludwig said, the solution to the plight of man in space and time must lie outside space and time. He says, we can't even define what life is unless we are looking at life from the outside. He was a non-believer. He's just an intelligent guy. He says, we can't even define what life is unless we're looking at life from the outside, which no mere mortal can do. So why is it important that Jesus is not from this world? Well, brothers... You know, you and I cannot perform LASIK eye surgery so we can see on ourselves. We need someone else to do that. We cannot perform heart surgery on ourselves so we can live. Someone else needs to do that. What Jesus is saying in verse 23 is that he is uniquely qualified to do all of those things. Why on earth would we go to anybody else for truth when we have Christ who has the best perspective? God himself, who is not of this world, he knows exactly what is wrong with this world and what this world needs. He knows how to fix this world. He knows how to fix us because he's not of this world, is what he's saying. Which is one of the reasons these guys had no idea what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand his teaching. Because like us, they are from this darkened world. They are blind to truth. Which is one of the reasons Jesus says what he does in verse 19. He says, if you knew me, you would know my Father. In other words, the God that y'all say you believe in, you don't even know who that is. But if you do want to know him, and if you want to know what's going on, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with you, and, and how you can be fixed, and how you can have, how you can have light, come to me, and all, all the mysteries of divinity will unfold for you. You'll know the Father because you know me. How can you say that, Jesus? Well, he'll tell us explicitly in chapter 14, verse 6, because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's really cool what Jesus is doing here and what he did back in chapter 5. He's basically moving the cheese on the crowds. The crowds thought they had Jesus on trial. But it turns out Jesus really had them and all of us on trial. He said, I'll give you all the evidence you want. Do you believe me? I've given you every reason to do so. So Jesus says a whole bunch in verses 13 through 19, but two things. He appeals to his Godness, his Godhead, that he is in relationship with the Father, that he is one with the Father. And he also appeals to the fact that he is not from this world. He has the best perspective of what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. Now, lastly, and this is the most urgent question, how do we get the light of Jesus Christ in our life? Because remember, who he is is the glory of God. He's the very presence of God. He will guide us and he will protect us and he will give us the light of life. I mean, how do we get that? Well, Jesus shows us. He shows us in the remainder of these verses, primarily 24 through 59, but he lays it out simply back in verse 12, that second half of verse 12. He says, you want this light? What does he say? Follow me. Whoever follows me will not walk in, in spiritual and moral darkness, but they will have the light of life. So how do we get this light? We follow Jesus. And the question is, how do we follow Jesus? Well, he tells us. First off, we must see our need of Jesus. Verses 24, 28, 31 through 38. Most people, when they talk about following Jesus, they typically talk about following the model of Jesus, doing what Jesus did, emulating Jesus' life. Now that's very much a part of discipleship. Now, he is a model for us to follow. But Jesus gets a little bit more specific than that. It is clear that he is saying that we must understand our need of him. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, I mean, guys, we gotta see our sin problem. In the middle of this back and forth with the crowds, Jesus lays down a very important truth. He says, apart from him, we are in sin. And essentially, if we remain apart from him, we will die in our sins. We have a major sin issue. People have a sin issue. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1. He says, apart from Christ, we were dead in our sins in which we once walked. And notice this darkness that he's talking about, Paul, in that verse, verses 1 through 4. The the darkness in which we walked. He says, we were carrying out the desires of the body, the desires of our own mind, whereby nature we were children of wrath. Okay, so we were in our sin. We're dead in our sin. And and Jesus says here, if we remain there, we are slaves to sin. This is what he says plainly in verse 34. So Jesus is saying, crowds, you want to know why you are the way you are? What's wrong with you? Why you're walking around in darkness? Guys, you are a slave to sin. And and if if you even want to think about having freedom from all of that, first you have to understand that sin problem. It's dire. But that's not all. You also have to see the gracious provision which I am offering you, which Jesus points to in verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus uses the phrase, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. Again, that's referring to his work on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am he. Who is he? What Jesus has been describing this whole time. He is the Savior of the world. So when you see me high and lifted up, you will know exactly what I'm offering you. I like how Tim Keller comments on this. He says right there, Jesus is saying to the crowds, I am not just a good teacher or a model to follow. I am the only one who can save you and you must be saved. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to be lifted up for you. In other words, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be crushed so you can be healed. I am going to die alone in darkness So that you might have the light of life. I'll be cut off so you can be brought in. I'm going to die a slave's death so that you can be made free. Which is exactly what Jesus says in verses 31 through 38. Jesus is telling them, if you come to me as, as needy sinners, I will break the chains. I will take you out of the dungeons of darkness and you will be free. Finally. And you will enjoy all the freedom that the Son of God enjoys. But you must see your need for me. So first and foremost, we must see our need of Jesus and come to Jesus. Then secondly, in 39 through 41 and 56 through 58, we must obey Jesus. Once we come to him in belief as our Savior, we must obey him. Obeying Jesus is really what it means to abide in his word, which is what Jesus is primarily talking about in verses 31 through 38. To abide in Jesus means that you actually trust him, um, that you know that his word is your everything. You make it your home. You're not going to follow it perfectly in this life because you're a sinner, but you're certainly not practicing sin, which means that you're continually living in sin non-repentantly. You're going to practice righteousness that you live by repentance and faith. You're trusting in Jesus. You're making his word your home. And he says, that's what it means to follow me. Now, it's really interesting. In this passage, the unbelieving crowd, again, argues with Jesus that they weren't slaves. They were children of Abraham, which is hilarious to me. It really talks about how dark their hearts and minds are. Because the literal history of Israel, like for the most part, they were slaves, right? And like slaves for most of the most of their history, they were physical slaves. Because we've never been a slave to anybody. We're children of Abraham. And I really like how Jesus responds to them. He breaks out a little bit of biblical theology to to counter their argument. And really what he says in verses 56 through 58 and 39 through 41, you guys need to pump the brakes in this whole being related to Abraham thing. Okay, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, just think about Abraham. First off, I was the object of Abraham's hope. Okay, everything that, that was promised Abraham first off finds its fulfillment in me and furthermore i am abraham's god the one that he talked to and listened to the one that he was being led by is actually me okay so let's go let's go easy on this whole abraham thing because before abraham was i am is what jesus is saying but his main argument in this whole abrahamic pericope actually takes place in 39 through 42 and what he is saying to the crowds essentially is that the promises that were made to Abraham of the sonship and all the rest had nothing to do, has nothing to do with being biologically related to Abraham. In other words, it doesn't matter how religious your family was, it doesn't matter who your mom or your dad was or how well you know you know, Sunday school, it doesn't matter. That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you believe in the object of Abraham's hope, which is me. And if you actually believed in me, you would obey me just like Abraham did. But you don't, is what Jesus is saying. So we must obey Jesus. I mean, John takes this up in the rest of his gospel, or his epistles, rather. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, we've been studying the epistles of John in our Sunday night uh, worship services. But John, in chapter 1, verse 3 of his first letter, says, And by this we know that we have come to actually know Jesus if we keep his commandments. Again, not perfectly, but if you're obeying Jesus, of Jesus as your everything, if you're being guided by his word, well, that's pretty darn good evidence that you actually know who Jesus is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. What Jesus is saying is that to follow me means first off, you come to me as your savior. You come to me as a desperate, needy sinner. And once you come to me and rest in me, you follow me as your Lord. You you obey what I say. That's what it means to have Jesus as the light of your life. Lastly, and this is really happening concurrently with those other two points. Brothers, we, we love Jesus. This is what John says, or rather what Jesus says in response to the Jews' argument. Well, our Father is God, Jesus. Jesus says, that's not true. Your Father is the devil. And he wasn't saying they were devil worshipers. He's just saying there's only two groups of people in this life. Those who belong to God and those who don't. And you know who belongs to God by the fact they love me, Jesus. This is what he is saying. That the true sons and daughters of God will share the same affections that God has for Jesus. They will love Jesus. I mean, if, if one believes and loves God, one would believe in and love Jesus. This is the reason... Because uh, Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, therefore you cannot be a true child of God and not be in love with Jesus. And again, the Apostle John picks that up in his letters. He says the true children of God will not be in love with this world, and they will not be in love with the things of this world. They will be smitten, absolutely in love with Jesus. Jesus will be in the apple of their eye. Why because they know and believe that they are in the apple of Jesus' eye. Because that's what John says, that he first loved us. One of my favorite passages in John we'll get to is in John chapter 15, when Jesus commands his disciples, what he says here, he says, Abide in me. Abide in my word. Obey me. Abide in my love, is what he says. Why? Not to earn our discipleship, not to earn him but so that we might know how much he loves us, so that his joy might be in us and our joy be made complete. That's why we abide in Jesus. That's why we obey Jesus. That's why we love Jesus. Brothers, not to earn his love, but to live in response to the love that he has already poured over us. But but this is what it means to follow Jesus, to have his light. We come to him as needy sinners and we obey him in love. Because he first loved us, this is the summary of John H. It's just fascinating. It's amazing. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He is talking to a whole bunch of rebels. He is talking to a whole bunch of blasphemers, slaves to sin. And he says, "Do you guys want to be free? Do you want to finally understand what life is about? Who the Father is? Do you do you want to be guided and protected for all of eternity?" Verse 12, come to me, and you will never again walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. And that means two things. First off, it means that we actually have our eyes opened to truth and beauty and goodness. But it also implies that, brothers, we actually become little reflectors of light, which is unbelievable. That former just grubby sinners like us. Not only does he open our hearts and open our minds and open our eyes, but he actually uses us as little reflectors of light. That's what he says in verse 12. And this is what the rest of the New Testament testifies to. Ephesians 5.8, you once walked in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Matthew 5:14, Jesus says, "You church are a light to the world." He says again in Matthew chapter 13: 43, "The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father." Friends, <laughs> that is what our families need. That is what our city needs more than anything else. That's what this world needs. Little disciples of Jesus Christ who were reflectors of the light of Christ. And that's who He's made, every single one of us, if you belong to Him. So, brothers, by God's grace, let us be let us be that like that little fictional French girl and say to everyone who will listen: darkness lasts not even a second when you remember to turn on the light. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into your kingdom of light. We praise you and we bless you. May we never stop. And Father, may we so be so amazed by that truth that by the power of your spirit, you help us to be your little lights in this darkened world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.